Hey, welcome to the People of Packaging Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Peak. You can find me on all of the socials at Packaging Pastor. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, which is where I'm the most active, Adam Peak, P-E-E-K. I'm looking forward to it. We have a new children's book out, Packaging Peaks and the Sticky Situation, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at Mascot Books. Listen, I also want to give a shout out here to Specrite. They have been a longtime sponsor of the podcast. Listen, do the letters E-P-R strike any fear in you at all? If not, if you're a packaging manufacturer or if you're a brand, you should at least start to figure out what your packaging specs are. It's going to be absolutely critical. Go learn more at specright.com or just hit me up and I'll put you in contact with Laura and Adam and the team over there. Also, Supply Caddy. Supply Caddy is a leading global manufacturer and supplier of packaging and disposables for the food service industry. Their headquarters are in Miami, Florida, and they have manufacturing facilities in North America and Europe. Supply Caddy is able to provide high quality, affordable products for restaurants, chains, and food service brands globally. For more information, you can go to Supply Caddy, S-U-P-P-L-Y-C-A-D-D-Y.com. All of these links will be down in the show notes. Please be sure to check it out and support the guests that we have on this show. Connect up with them, follow them, learn more about this story. And speaking of which, let's get to our next guest. Well, thanks for tuning in here to this fun podcast episode that I'm excited about this. This has been an episode that has been, gosh, two and a half years in the making, I want to say. Um I met uh, Dr. Chelsea Shields through TEDx Salt Lake City. She's incredible. She did. She was a speaker and a trainer. And uh, I think you've done. Have you done two TEDx talks? Is that correct? So I have two TED talks that are out. But what people don't know about TED is when you go to the actual conferences, about ninety percent of those talks never make it to online. So I've actually given four TED talks. Oh. Only only two of them have actually seen the light of day. So even though people think you're great, behind the scenes, you're like, dang it, like two of my talks didn't even make it. <laughs> well, mine got like this weird disclaimer on the YouTube page, and I didn't know what it was until I was talking to Melanie, and she said, well, we were trying to prove that Nike didn't pay you to wear their trash shoes on stage. I'm like, they thought Nike paid oh. dollars. I didn't know. I just I didn't know about how cool it was. And well, and remember when I was training you, what's so fun, one of the smallest things that people don't know about the difference between what's called media um, training, where they're really looking, your the cameras are on you. And so they're really looking above your waist, right? That you have to really make sure your hands are present in the camera because it's so comfortable to have our hands below our waist. So that's kind of the awkward thing you have to do when you're performing for cameras. But when you're performing from stage, I tell all of my people, your shoes matter most. And guess what? I told you that. And so you picked your shoes on purpose and because your shoes are at the eye line of everyone sitting in the audience. So it's the first thing they see. And so that is so funny that I told you to pay attention to your shoes. You picked a great shoe and then that's what got you in trouble. I was like, I made shoes made from trash and I'm talking <laughs> and that was the thing. I don't really know if it got me in trouble because I don't really particularly care that there's a note that's like, this does not conform to the whatever. Uh, but I just thought it was fascinating. Uh, but anyway, I'm joined here. The voice that you have already heard is Dr. Chelsea Shields. She is the founder of the Brand Thropology Agency right here in beautiful, lovely Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Dr. Shields, or can I just call you Chelsea through the interview? Do you want me to? Absolutely. Sweet. I only make people call me Dr. Shields when I walk in and, and they kind of treat me like their daughter or they disrespect me. Then I, then I force the honorific so that I get some respect, but you already, you and I already respect each other a ton. So 100%. I don't need that. Hundred percent. You. Everybody needs to put some respect on Dr. Chelsea Shields' name. But Chelsea, I'm super excited because you do some incredible work, and and we found this out through the TEDx uh, Salt Lake City process. Is that my work in packaging is actually really closely linked to your PhD and the work that you do through your uh, brand anthropology agency. And so I would just love for you to give. Uh, some background on who you are. I mean, you have a PhD for crying out loud. Uh, I, I, I don't, and that's incredible. So just, you know, maybe walk us through your background. I know there's a Ted talk about your background. So if you just want to refer people to that, that'd be awesome. But, um, just give the listeners a little bit of idea of, of who you are. All right, let me just jump in here real quickly because this is super exciting. Uh, my wife and I and our kids came out with this book, Packaging Peaks in the Sticky Situation. It took us a couple of years to write. We spent a lot of time in illustrating and all that. It's finally out. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at mascotbooks.com. There's a link down in the show notes that you can click. We wrote it because I was trying to describe to my kids you know, what it's like. And there's all these children's books out there about various different industries and about various different jobs. We wanted people in our industry to have a book to be able to relate to their kids with. So go pick it up, please. It would mean so much to support us. Packaging Peaks in the Sticky Situation on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Let's get back into this interview. Absolutely. So I fell in love with anthropology in undergrad and spent my entire next 20 years in anthropology. So I got a bachelor's, I got a master's, and I got dual PhDs in anthropology. Now, it wasn't supposed to be dual. <laughs> I was always studying cultural anthropology. There's multiple forms of anthropology. You can study humans, you can study culture, you can study evolution, you can study bones, you can study primates, right? So what I was fell in love with was ritual. And early, early on at Brigham Young University, there was no study abroads to Africa. And so I kind of just went rogue. And I went to the University of Ghana by myself as a 21-year-old sophomore. I spent six months at the University of Ghana as a, as a traveling student. And I just really learned a ton of stuff. Came back sophomore year, started the Ghana Medical Anthropology Study Abroad Program, and then basically got the university to pay me to take students and professors to Africa every year. So by the time I graduated as a senior, I had tons of field work. I had tons of research that really helped me, you know, without any money to be able to kind of get into grad school on scholarship. Um, so um, Boston University has one of the best African studies programs in the world. And so I was really, really excited to get to be a part of their African studies department, which shares with Harvard. And so I would kind of have this idyllic grad school experience where I was walking from BU across the Charles over to Harvard to take like tree classes or Yoruba classes or like really deep African history classes and with like the world's leading experts. And it was just the time of my life. Um, anyways, in anthropology, what we study is something called symbolic anthropology. The idea is that a symbol can carry loads of meaning, so much so that hurting that symbol actually hurts the identity or the group. Um, so for example, someone burning a flag or let's say destroying a Christian cross. Like if aliens came down and saw this Christian cross all over the world, they would be like, what, what is this? What does this, it wouldn't mean nothing to them. And yet to even a stranger in the middlest parts of nowhere, they would be able to explain what that cross means. 
And that's symbolic anthropology. And that's basically what branding is. And so that is the field of study that I got really, really interested in. That's what I spent 17 years studying. But what was interesting is I was working with indigenous healers in West Africa, studying medical pluralism, living about, you know, 200 miles or a couple hours, two hours from the, you know, electricity and biomedical centers. You know, we had little outposts and we had little health clinics, but really I got to study a place where what, what, how do people deal with tragedy or trauma or hurt or conflict when the biomedicine is not quick or available? And that was just fascinating. I got to see birth. I got to see death. I got to see, you know, broken bones and gangrene and just daily struggles of how people solve things. And I wrote this whole dissertation on symbolic anthropology and ritual and the usage and how the indigenous rituals were bringing people together and the music was healing and, and causing lower stress and whatever. And my healers said, no, that's not what we do. We heal people. We don't want that dissertation. And I had to go back and do the whole other three years of like doing the coursework for the biological anthropology PhD, trying to understand why does our body alter during a ritual? So I had to do all of this other work. I had to dive into this whole other field that was really about biology, neurochemistry, um, the placebo effect, um, mind-body healing. And I was so, so lucky that my relationships over there allowed me to have my dissertation advisor, who was Ted Kapchuk, the world's leading expert in Chinese medicine and its relation to, uh, you know, biochemistry and neurobiology and how, how these thousands and thousands of ancient years of history have actually led to some really important findings and really validating indigenous and alternative medicine as, hey guys, this stuff is working. We need to really validate it. So he and his team at Harvard Medical School in the program of placebo studies, they go around doing like real Reiki and fake Reiki, real acupuncture, fake acupuncture, real, you know, doula in the in the birthing room, fake doula in the birthing room. And these are all medical doctors, right? So they're basically studying the placebo effect, basically how our context or our social status or our relationships or everything in a room that you're perceiving and responding to how your body reacts to that. And they're doing it from uh, all of the scientific way. In the meantime, I'm over in the middle of Ghana and I'm doing it without electricity, without refrigeration, trying to figure out what I can measure, how I can measure it, and then what we can learn from it. So that was just such a fun, fun experience. Sorry, I took a little bit too long. No, to it's do that, fascinating. But... <laughs> I, I, because it, because it all, it, it, the cool part is like how all this is going to tie into packaging. So See, you're uh, already seeing it. I'm, already seeing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. So that's my biggest issue is people are like, well, what do you have to do with branding and packaging and, you know, research? And like, they don't get it. They don't make the connection. You like, you've already made that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's true. Right. I mean, like the example that I've, that I've, it comes up all the time, right? Is from people who don't know anything about packaging. It's just like, oh, I love Apple. And I'm like, there's a reason that people keep their Apple products and pay more for their Apple products and love their box. I love the boxes that it comes in. They don't even throw it away. They don't even throw it away. No, it's, you know, they they put the stickers on the back of their car. Like I'm part of this tribe. And it's like, ah, man, there's so, there's so much here, but I want, I want you to keep, because I feel like there's still more. Yeah. So basically the symbolic anthropology is how basically we, there's a great book called 
oh man, I'm going to mess it up. So I'm not even going to say it. I think it's the neurobiology, neuroanthropology or something. But basically, uh, Dr. Daniel Lende and Greg Downey explain that symbolic anthropology is the way that meaning and concepts get under the skin. Such a beautiful way to say it. And then the placebo studies part that I study is what happens after we learn something or perceive something, how our body reacts and triggers. And think of it like a light switch. We turn on a bunch of chemicals. Okay, so people think a placebo effect is just in your head, and that's absolutely wrong. What a placebo effect is, is basically anywhere I put a human, their body will react to their environment. So if I plop you on a TED stage with millions of people and eight cameras, your body will react to that. If I plop you at home with a blankie in comfy clothes and Netflix, your body will react to that. If I put you with your ex who used to be mean to you, your body will react to that. So what we're saying is that we think the only things that have an effect on our lives are chemical substrates like pills or like a, you know, a mechanical um, um, intervention. But we, that's not true. Humans have evolved to react and respond neurobiologically and chemically to how they perceive their environments. And that's the placebo effect, okay? You can go negative, that's a nocebo effect, and it can go positive, that's a placebo effect. But it doesn't matter what happens in any interaction, you are being affected. And so that's how it, it bleeds into packaging. That's how it bleeds into branding. That's how it bleeds into marketing and advertising and social media is every image you see is communicating about 10 to 40 billion, literally, this is scientifically studied, 10 to 40 billion concepts in under three seconds. Mm. So we don't take that initial first impression as seriously as I believe every company needs to take it. And we need to begin to communicate non-verbally because humans are able to pick up, like I said, over 40 billion inputs, right? Oh, from your face alone, people can read about 10,000 micro expressions in under a second. So then look at the room, then look at the doctor on the wall, then look at the doctor's white coat, then look at your past history. Like imagine how many inputs are being uh, received in one medical encounter, right? right. So uh, that take that same thing that we can study scientifically, right? The placebo effect didn't evolve in biomedicine. That's 200 years old, right? Yeah. So take that same concept, apply it to anything, religion being a part of a community, a sports team, scrolling, advertising, social media, we are always impacting someone's perception of the world and therefore what chemistry compound they're feeling. We can affect someone's you know, internal cocktail. And so that's what I do for companies is, well, how do you want to make someone feel, A, why do you want to make them feel that? B, humans are predictable. So we know anger causes action. We know sadness causes generosity. We know happiness causes sharing. Like we know some science, right? So how do you want your humans to behave? Then let's make them feel that. And then how do we make them feel that? There's a science there too. Hmm. And I, there's this whole science that I think a lot, luxury companies do a lot better in investing in this because their margins have to. But there's a whole science of, basically the presentation layer of the analog world that I do not believe people pay enough attention to. Let's unpack that a little bit. So, so the presentation layer and remind me the quote, cause I think this also ties back into the quote from uh, Dr. Is it Danielle or Daniel Lende? Um, 
Yes, Daniel Lende. He's at uh, South Florida. Yep. Cool. So there, you, you said a quote there that I was trying to write down and I didn't, I didn't catch it, but it was like something about getting, um, what was it's it? It's a beautiful quote. And he's basically, it's this, this, it's really hard in anthropology, this biology, culture, nurture, nature kind of construct. We know now that they're, they're both, right? We, there's no one that complain that really can go off and say it's only nurture. Or it's only 100%. nature that, that's truly educated. Like no, no scientist that's truly educated will say that. So anthropology has a really hard job of basically explaining how ritual and cultural and meaning and religion gets basically infused into your biology, right? And so it's basically through this process of this placebo effect and this, and even more than that, like ignore that if that bothers you. Let's go back to its root cause, which is the human's ability to adapt mm -hmm. to our environments. That's basically what it is. And he, he says that that's how culture gets under our skin. That's what it was. That's how culture gets yep. under our skin. Mm -hmm. um, Is that meaning. And that meaning then makes us, so if I go out in the world and think every, I'm a victim and everyone's hurting me and that meaning keeps getting reinforced, my biology is going to have that cortisol, right? And I'm going to have those chemicals. If I go out in the world and think, I'm the queen of the world. The world does whatever I want. Life is wonderful. My biology is going to start to react to that, right? I'm going to have more oxytocin. I'm going to have more dopamine. So this whole idea of manifestation and the secret and all of that stuff, while I think it's quite new agey and silly and, and like I think people take it too far and like manipulate people for money, there is a root science there. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, the connection that I that I'm I'm seeing here is like, I'll take something really silly. So like, uh, maybe it's not really silly, but um, for a while, for like the last 10 years, I, I've worked for folding carton printing companies. And the amount of soft touch varnish that goes onto a box is crazy. Uh, like it's gone, it's gone way up, right? And okay, now explain to the people why. So a soft, so a soft touch varnish when when you pick it up, right, uh, is is something that feels um, it almost feels like your skin, like it has this it has this uh, very comforting feeling to it, right? Versus like the harsh fibers of the paper, or even like the really glossy, glamorous, you know, UV sheen and coating. And so I I think my question for you is is that that seems to be something that would be tied to what your anthropology and a sense of belonging like this to me it almost says, says to me like this brand feels like i can trust it because it is feels like me it feels like a, almost like i'm touching another person and that's very that's comforting um i don't i have no data or science to back any of that up right like but i've i've always wondered you know maybe are are, are is that kind of a thing 100 percent. okay um, so imagine the cost. Imagine the cost it takes to get that soft touch varnish. That is how much that company is willing to spend to, to make their customer feel a little bit better. Now, times that by probably 10,000 plus, that's how much luxury spends. Mm -hmm. Luxury companies spend more on the customer experience than any other industry. And the reason is, is because their people don't care about money, and but they care about how they feel. And if you can make each touch point make someone feel good, they will come back. And that's the difference between co companies that succeed and companies that fail, to me, especially product companies, 
is that most businesses think that they need to create a how, what, why, operations, product, finances, make sure it's good, look at the margins, like does the product work, do people buy it, boom. They spend 90% of those business on probably all of those executives, right? Very few have a CXO, mm. okay? Very few pay attention to how the customer feels. Very few do testing before, during, and after. Very few listen to the customer throughout the entire development iteration process. Very few are investing in the actual, what I call ethnographic lived experience of the product. I go in and see how they use your eyeliner in their makeup bag. And why did they spend $100 on this eyeliner and $1 on this one? And why are they both equally in your makeup bag? And I go into your closets and I go into your homes and I, I see your product in the lived experience of how humans are actually using it. And like only 1% of companies actually pay researchers to do that level of research. And yet we know when we actually study um, content and presentation, only about 7% of someone's initial interaction with you or an idea or a product is its actual content. Mm. Okay. Most of it is how they feel. Most of it is the presentation or the nonverbals or the signals they're reading. Most of it is the way that you stand, the way you walk, the what your outfit is, your hair. Like most of how someone communicates, 93% is how we're reading information as humans. So that's what I encourage just if you take anything away from this kind of anthropological diatribe that I just had is you know, there's two parts of any product, of any brand, of any campaign. Does it work? Are we saying the right information? Like, are we getting the table stakes across? But a second part that some argue is even more important is how are people feeling? And if you're not investing in that part, you're behind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a, um, I might have mentioned this book to you. I can't remember. Uh, granted, it was a while ago, but one of my more favorite business books, and I, I tell people to read it for business all the time, was uh, it's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And Love that. We did talk about that. That's one of my favorite books too. But tell me why in terms of packaging. I'm really curious. Yeah. So um, because he, he has a quote in there and he says that humans are um, they're, they're like intellectual riders being steered by an emotional elephant. And, you know, so the idea that you can, you can just, you can just convince somebody intellectually to do something based on, you know, just pure logic and facts is, is actually not, not all that accurate, right? Like the major, like you're saying, the majority of decisions are going to be made based on, based on human emotions. That's not manipulative. It's just using science and data to make your own decisions to say, hey, it's our job. We believe in the efficacy of our products. We believe it's good for humanity. And it's our job to see the right people buying our products. And if you're not paying attention to their emotions and how they feel, then then you're actually doing a disservice to the people who could be buying your products. So if you want to feel a certain way, then and, and you make them feel a different way, then they're not going to buy your products. And, and, but the product would be good for them. And so you're actually, you're, you're not helping anybody by, by ignoring the reality. And I feel like I say, feel there, are, there are people who you'd say this to, and they'd be like, now we're just manipulating emotions. And it's like, but it's all emotional manipulation. That's what's happening. Like to your point, that's what's happening every time they walk into Target or Sephora or Ulta or Best Buy 
you are being bombarded with images and what was it 40 billion different data points and 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 that's that's where packaging plays even even online when they're scrolling through what is that experience like how how do they feel when they're on amazon how do they feel when you're on when they're on your website packaging plays a huge role in that it's not just the information and the nutrition facts <laughs> if it was that easy every label would be black and white with your name the nutrition facts and the right. the ingredients but it's not cuz that's not how we're made that's not how we're wired it's it's so much deeper than that oh i cannot agree with you more and i think you just kind of nailed something that's very 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 important and so i want to focus on that for a minute so there's three things i want to say the first one is of that 40 billion pieces of information that people humans take in every second humans are only able to process consciously 40. Okay. There's a great book. The book is called a hundred things. Every designer needs to know about people by Susan Weinshek. Schenk. I hope I'm saying that correct. It's a great book and it's great for packaging too. But basically there's a line in there that she says, you know, humans are only consciously able to process about 40 out of the 40 billion mm. pieces of information every second they're getting. Okay. So the first concept I want to make, or the first statement I want to make after what you said is if you're not doing your duty on that second end, so you created a great product, great, now you launch it, now you leave it alone. No, no, you're only halfway done, sir. <laughs> like that's the part that we miss out on the most. Now we actually have to make this product appetizing and attractive and like put it in customer first language and what's in it for me and make it easy for them. And if we're not doing that, they're not gonna, we're not gonna be one of the 40 things out of that 40 billion that they ever pay attention to. So we have to be bold. We have to be strategic. And just the same way we pick the color of our packaging to stand out and be differentiated among our competitive set in our retail space, we got to do the same thing with our messaging. And that's where people kind of kind of drop the drop the ball. Just like your packaging, your messaging, your branding, your the word choice you use, your hooks, all of that, you only 40 pieces of information are going to get seen in that in that one scan at that target shelf. How do you stand out? And and I have an example of that, that a product packaging that I'm super proud of, a Utah-based company that we really killed it in that because we created faces on the side of the boxes. And humans see faces in this one-sixth of the speed that they see any other visual image. So what we did strategically and, and behaviorally and psychologically that no one else understands is that the next time that woman scans that makeup aisle, she doesn't know, but we know she's going to see our product in a sixth of the time. And we're going to stand out and we're going to be one of those 40 things she remembers out of the 40 billion. And so we can be strategic. That was Babe Lash. I helped rebrand them with um, Hint Creative. They are a local boutique Salt Lake agency. And we took them from Babe Lash where they're really limited. They couldn't do brows and hair and lips. I mean, I really kind of had to go all the way to the head of the company and not even that brand, but the head of the whole company to say, if you want to scale, you can't be Babe Lash. We've got to expand your name. I can't sell a Babe Lash lipstick. I just won't do it. Yeah. It's weird that it says Lash, you know? Um, and of course, he's a genius. He's one of the smartest guys I know. Um, was totally thumbs up. One of the best companies I've ever worked with where they really applied every insight. And they are killing it in the space right now. Not only because we have the faces on the boxes, but we did about... 100 other of these little human behavioral, psychological, placebo effect based kind of concepts within their rebrand. 
And just infusing those had just such a big impact. So that's the first thing that absolutely you need to be pay attention and stand out. The second thing is I, I actually help doctors in this. Hmm. You know, in medicine, medicine has huge rates of placebo effects. In fact, in 2017, they interviewed a bunch of doctors around the world and about 50% of doctors admitted that they regularly use placebo effects in their daily practice to help their patients. Um, we see this a lot in medicine and it's a big conflict, right? But what I tell doctors when they're in that room is exactly what you said. In fact, I wrote it down. If you're not creating an emotional environment that elicits positive chemicals for healing, then you are harming your patient. Mm. Okay. So you can tell me, I don't want to manipulate people. I don't, I want to be a hundred percent honest. Okay. Your patient will suffer. We have the studies that show, we have the studies that show if a doctor does, says, and acts this way, their patient recovers quicker. They have less complications. They have less future side effects. So wouldn't you want to do that? And it's just a behavioral or a context shift. That's all it requires. And here we're talking life or death, right? Right. So, so obviously doctors are like, yes, what can we do behaviorally or with our design or our context or a set? Like, what can we do to help these people? Yes, let's do it. But I see the same thing when it comes to packaging or branding. Why wouldn't you want them to get all the positives? And why wouldn't you want to limit some of the negatives? If you know about it, they're going to be affected either way. So you ignoring it is actually naivety or a lack of preparation. Yep. This is awesome. And, you know, I just looked at the clock, Chelsea. We have been, uh, we have been talking now uh, and for 27 minutes, which is amazing. But I want to I wanna start kind of angling a little bit towards, uh, towards the finish line here. So uh, I, I, think, I think that the, the listeners have a pretty good idea of, of, of what it is that you do for brands, but I'd love for you to maybe put a lovely little uh, brandthropological bow on on this by just kind of walking through like what types of brands um, typically do you engage with or agencies as well that might engage with you? Um, you know, maybe maybe a little bit about maybe a little bit more about what it is that you do. I know that you've, you've mentioned testing and you've mentioned some other things, but just kind of what it is you do. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up with how they can get a hold of you because I think you're doing, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Southern Baptist minister. I would say you're doing the Lord's work here. Uh, Dr. Shields, you're doing, <laughs> you're doing, you're doing great work. So I would love for as many people as I can to be able to reach out and connect with you. So uh, first part is just walk through what that is. And then second part, how do people get in touch with you? Well, first of all, that just warmed my heart from a Southern Baptist minister to tell me I'm doing the Lord's work. I'm a former Mormon and 500 cousins who are all LDS, and I'm not doing the Lord's work in their minds. So thank you very much. I've so heard that phrase in years. Other thing I want to thank you about is I don't think anyone has ever coined the term anthropological. I freaking love it, Adam. Great job. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. So I typically work with big brands about 500 million to 2 billion in annual revenue that can afford or know that they need to do research before they make A, a new campaign, B, a new product, or C, a big rebrand. They're unable to just 
you know, get the, get the group in the room and make with their gut choices and push forward. They know that any agency won't understand the hundreds of thousands of people that are already loyal. And so they really need to do research about what's working, what people love, so they don't lose that familiarity. That's one of the biggest mistakes brands make when they rebrand or when they try something new is that they lose their old loyalists. So you can always do a rebrand where you get to be whoever you want to be as you grow up. But if you have a loyal following, it's, I consider like you, I think it's unethical to do that without bringing these people along and giving them what they love about the company. So that's that first part of that research, that discovery phase where it's like, okay, we know we need changes, but where do we change? How do we change? Why? We got to do industry research. What's selling? What's not? We got to do competitive research. Who's, how, who's selling? What are they selling? How are they selling? How are they different? Where do we stand out? What are our differentiators? You've got to do consumer research. Why do people love you right now? Why do customers buy you? What do they like? What do they not like? And then you've got to test it against net new customers. This is who we want to go after. Why aren't you buying from us? Right? So it takes a lot of research to kind of figure out where we are in the world today. And then we now apply the strategy. This is where we're doing placebo stacking. This is where we're doing, you know, focus groups. We're doing, do you like this logo or this logo, this color or this color, this mood board or this mood board? And we're really taking it out of the hands of what I consider and when my experience, mostly older, mostly male executives. And we're saying that the customer who is buying the product and using it in their home is going to give us more details as we iterate and develop that brand product or campaign. And then executives make just other types of decisions, right? So we give them the product they want, how they want it, how they want it mentioned, how they want it said, how they want it sold. And then we decide how much we spend on ads. We decide, you know, I give, I still give executive decision-making power, but I think so often because most companies don't have a CXO, that the customer's voice gets lost in those executive meetings. And so ultimately in that strategy phase, I represent the customer. And I, if we, if we don't agree on something, let's go test it. Yeah. And I try not to have an opinion at all. Right. So once we kind of have done all the testing and we kind of get to a, a rate, some companies require that, um, you do what's called AB randomized testing. So I do different order ABCD. I have four, maybe four options of a brand or four options of say of product packaging. Right. And I go test it and I change the order every time so that it's not always option A showing up, right? And then I go test it in different platforms. So one's digital, one's physical, one's print, one's in person. And then I go test it with different people. Some are brand experts, some are our customers, some are our ideal customers, some are total strangers from a random sample. And I have to get to a 40% purchase likelihood in order for big Fortune 500 companies to invest in that product packaging. Okay, so I have four options. And unless one of those four options, 40% of that random group of people in that random order in all of the ways I test it have to say, I like option C before a big company will invest in the million dollars of packaging. Now that's the number one thing small companies never do is just that testing to make sure before they invest. So that's what we call validation testing. So really that's what Brands Poly does is kind of discovery testing, strategy and validation testing to really make sure everything about your brand, product, design, whatever you're going to try to launch is rooted in what I consider the true fundamentals of business, which is who's your audience, what do they want, how do they want it. Yep. Love it. 
Uh, well, uh, how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to reach out? There's been so many incredible nuggets of wisdom here that's been that's been dropped, and I'm I'm hoping that there's your inbox is flooded with uh, with people who say I listen to you on Adam's podcast, and and man, we need you, or I'm an agency, and and we've got people to connect up with, you know, things like that. So, how would people get in touch with you? So you can reach me at LinkedIn. It's just Chelsea Shields. You can also get a hold of me through Adam <laughs> oh, or my email, just drchelseashields at gmail.com. Um, I do not have any social media. I have a whole theory about that. I have no website. I have nothing. It's just word of mouth right now, um, which has been what I wanted. I'm building what's called my proof of concept processes. And I'm hoping to go online in the next six months to a year where I have my own kind of social media and website and you can get a hold of me there, but I'm in the building process right now. So if you get into my inner circle before that happens, uh, you're going to have more access to me than in about six months. Awesome. I love it. Well, I'll make sure that there's, you know, the, um, your emails down in the show notes and your LinkedIn profile is also down in the show notes. So people can click on it. I also try to grab some links to the books that you mentioned, cause those seem really fascinating. I love reading a good book. I just finished a book about uh, aliens and the Old Testament, and so I love just stretching my brain on d various different topics, not just you know the things that I'm interested in, but just wide range of things. Uh, so I I'm excited to get a hold of some of these books and read them. Uh, Dr. Chelsea Shields, I'm so happy to know you. I'm so grateful for all the work that you're doing, uh, how you've helped me, how you've helped the, the TED community and, and brands and so many other people. You, you give so much and, and you've learned so much. And I'm so thankful that you're able to come on the podcast and share a little bit about what it is you're doing. So thank you again for coming on. It's been awesome. Oh, anytime. I feel grateful to be here, Adam. I'm so grateful we got to meet. I do want to get the name of that book right. I think it's called The Enculturated Brain by Daniel Lende and Greg Downey. So I will look that up to make sure, but it's a really good book about really how culture gets under your skin. I love it. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Thanks, Adam. Hey, congrats. You made it to the end of the podcast. If you're looking for more great podcast material in the packaging industry, please check out Sustainable Packaging with Corey Connors and the newly redesigned Package Unboxed with Avelio Matos. Go find them wherever you listened to this podcast. Thanks, everybody.